Welcome to the Talks on Law California MCLE podcast. Interviews with leading attorneys, professors, and judges on important and thought-provoking legal topics. And now for the interview. In the last 10 years, intimate partner violence has accounted for 15% of all violent crime in the United States. And while this problem cuts across gender, race, and socioeconomic groups, it disproportionately affects women in poverty. Hello and welcome to Talks on Law. I'm your host, Joel Cohen. To guide us today on our conversation, we have two expert practitioners, Diane Faniello and Susanna Saul, both working at Her Justice, a not-for-profit focused on defending and protecting women in need. Diane, Susanna, welcome to Talks on Law. Thank Thank you for having us. Why don't we start with the problem itself? We know about domestic violence, but how is this affecting women across the country? As you said in your introduction, if you think about about one in four women will be affected by intimate partner violence or sexual assault in their lifetime. So it's a huge problem. And as you said, it's broad-based. It really affects all women, all layers of society. So first of all, we're talking about violent crimes, right? We're talking about physical abuse. We're talking about Um, health problems as a result of that physical abuse. We're also talking about things like economic abuse and social isolation. So it really affects women and makes them um, more likely to be impoverished, more likely to be homeless, more likely to have health problems, more likely to face unemployment and low education because of the obstacles that are placed in their way by being in abusive relationships. So it can go both ways. So being in an abusive relationship can put women at higher risk for these economic issues and being in a low economic starting point may, pu- may predispose women to higher risk of, of domestic violence. That's or right. Inner partner abuse. That's right. And it's primarily twofold because many women who are of low economic status or don't have the self sufficiency or the tools to get out of domestic violence relationships oftentimes stay and are trapped in those relationships. Some of them may also choose for safety reasons to stay in those relationships. But when you're starting at that lower level, the opportunities and the tools you have to to leave are, are um, less than those of a wealthier or a higher income status. And we're also talking about the way it affects children, right? Because children are likely to wit- be witness to acts of violence, and um, we're really talking about power and control, right? So it's not just violence. We're talking about things like, like I said, economic abuse and social isolation and a dynamic of power and control where the abuser really keeps the target of the victim um, at, a, at a very controlled, isolated place where she can't reach out for help. And children, again, are affected um, because they witness this and they see these patterns and um, are exposed to higher levels of um, trauma. They're vulnerable to also being hurt themselves. They're also shown a model of coupling that obviously you know, impacts their ability to have healthier relationships later on. You mentioned power and control. What do you mean by that? The way that a, an abuser does that is by um, using mental abuse, emotional abuse, um, psychological abuse, and, and examples of those, like for instance, the psychological abuse would be to humiliate, denigrate, offend either publicly or in the home that other person and to make them feel as if they um, have to stay. 
And the other portion of it is a lot of women feel that they have to stay because they know that the next step from the psychological abuse might be physical violence. And in order to prevent the physical violence from happening, they'll stay in the, you know, keep, keep calm or develop defense mechanisms or coping mechanisms in order just to keep the family intact to, to prevent um, the next level of abuse from happening, either because they want to protect their children or protect themselves from, from being hurt any further. Um, the power and control wheel discusses the different areas of domestic violence and abuse, and it's it's exactly that. It's the Duluth model that was created in, in Minas by Minnesota Domestic Violence Organization. The Duluth model. Yeah, it's a Duluth model, and um, it's what is used. That? It's it's the power and control is the power and control wheel is the Duluth model. It's created basically a by visual model that basically breaks down all the ways in which an abuser might retain power and control over his abuser. And so the wheel that Diane was describing is sort of a visual way to describe or explain what are the methods that a, an abuser uses. And it really lists all the things that we're talking about. So I'll give you an example. Sure. Um, the other day I was meeting with a client who, whose husband who actually hadn't struck her. Um, what he did was um, he happened to be an alcoholic, and when he got drunk, he um, wouldn't let her sleep. So he would come in in the middle of the night, and he would turn on all the lights. He would turn on the radio. He would turn on an alarm. If she had the air conditioning on, he would turn off the air conditioner to the point where she slept in the living room on a recliner. She didn't even sleep in the bedroom anymore. Just to bother her? The idea is, of all these behaviors, is to keep power and control over her. Because without sleep, she was really at high, functioning at a lower level and couldn't sort of think and couldn't go to her dance class and she couldn't go to her yoga class. She was a very active woman and she was an older woman. And, um, and this was his way of, of retaining power and control over her. So this was, this was an example of an abusive relationship where there actually wasn't any violence at all, but it was still an abusive relationship. I mentioned in the introduction that poor women are statistically more likely to be subjected to intimate partner abuse. Uh, why is that? Oftentimes, they, they find themselves vulnerable or susceptible to meeting individuals who um, they rely on either financially or rely on um, in order to, because they've made them promises, again, you know, going toward the psychological abuse. And then that um, lends itself to them staying in, a, in an abusive relationship because of the promises of, um, you know, wealth or caring for their children or providing them with an education. There, there are so many reasons why women who um, are on a lower income level or have less of an education, why they're more impacted by abuse. You talked about women who are stuck. Uh, women who may have lower education levels or, or less financial resources. It seems to me one of the major issues here would be letting these women know that they actually have rights, that they have uh, access to the courts. Absolutely, and, and they don't. Most of them don't understand that they do have this, this access to justice, if you will. Um, just recently, the, uh, in, in New York State, the commissioner of, uh, to combat domestic violence has established outreach programs where nowadays we as a group go out to different locations 
visit different precincts or just stand at subway stations to promote information about the availability for domestic violence victims and survivors to um, find legal counsel, to find social work services. So we're getting out there and spreading the word that there is access to um, counsel, both legal as well as social, um, in order to help them move forward and to give them the tools in order to get out of the abusive relationships that they're in. And one other thing that happens often in these relationships is that the abuser might tell them, if you leave me, I will take the children away. If you leave me, I will get you arrested. If you leave me, I will use the courts until you have nothing. And because of the dynamic that's been established, women often believe them. So they don't, a lot of women don't see the courts as a tool that can be used to empower them. They see the courts as a tool that the abuser is using as a threat over them. And so part of our jobs in doing outreach um, and in talking to women, the women who are lucky enough to even interface with us, um, is to let them know that that's not true, that, that they can have a, an, a chance, an opportunity to seek justice, to seek legal remedies to improve their lives. And it's not just their abuser who is able to use the justice system. So from there, from uh, these outreach programs, what's the next steps? Well, hopefully, um, when we meet with a, a person in our office who identifies as a, um, a survivor of, of intimate partner violence or abuse, um, we talk to them about what's going on and what their situation is. Are they still living with the abuser? Do they have any contact with, with him? Um, what's happening in their lives? What factors are contributing to them staying? What, what are they afraid of? Um, most often, it's really important to really listen to the survivor and get their unique perspective. They're the experts on their situation. And so things, little, small things to us, like, um, you know, is it okay if you receive a letter at your address from us um, or a message on your cell phone from us? We have to because be, those things may be we monitored. We have to be very careful because those things may be monitored. And if um, an abuser knows that, some, that, their, um, that their target has reached out for help, often that's very dangerous for the target. Statistically speaking, um, women um, are much more likely to be hurt. Um, they're most vulnerable at the time that they're about to leave the relationship. And we do a lot of safety planning as well. So in the during the interview process, we also make sure that they have safety measures in place, that if the abuser does find out that they've met with someone and received legal information, that we give them the tools and help them prepare for um, a quick getaway, whether it be to a shelter and uh, bringing their children to a shelter or having the phone number to a domestic violence hotline that can get them to safety. Um, so while we're in the process of interviewing them and getting all the facts and circumstances of their situation so we can provide them with proper referrals or help them legally ourselves, um, we're also doing a lot of safety planning and making sure that um, the client is protected, that we're not providing them with more exposure to danger. So you're not just playing the role of a lawyer, you're also uh, strategy management, security planning, um, and also the the counseling that comes along Absolutely. with us. Absolutely. In in meeting with them, we have to, you know, we tell them certain things. Like just for instance, I met with a client last week who um, is preparing to go forward on a custody proceeding. She has court appointed counsel, which I'm sure we'll discuss later. But um, where did you meet with her? Well, I met with this particular client in Queens, New York. Um, 
she was coming to us just for advice because she was a bit unhappy with her current representation. Though we couldn't provide her with direct advice, we gave her some tips, just usual tips that I would give any person that's either preparing for um, litigation, simple things such as keeping a journal or having a calendar to document events or things, some, and, and being able to keep all of her important documents on her person um, just so she doesn't lose things. I mean, small little things that when you're in the midst of an abusive relationship that you're not thinking of, and it's important to meet with um, a professional who's been doing these types of cases or giving advice on these types of matters um, for a long period of time that can clue you into these things that you wouldn't necessarily think of on your own. Um, so that's very important. That I think primarily besides our role as legal advocates, our other role when we're wearing our social work hats, if you will, um, is to provide clients with tools, safety tools, in order to protect themselves and their children, not just the legal tools. When do you consider removing them from the actual physical presence? They have to make that decision. That's not up to us. Like Susanna said, the client is in the best position to understand the danger and safety of her, her circumstances and her home. So if a client comes to me and says that it's going to be worse off if I leave um, or is not willing to go into a domestic violence shelter primarily because she has children that she doesn't want to to, to expose there. or to move them or to uproot them from their community, from their friends. Um, so, so many factors are taken into consideration. Susanna and I would never be in a position where we could tell the client what to do. We could talk to her about different um, strategies and circumstances and, and what she would be able to do and talk things through um, to give her a better sense of what would be the best decision for her to make, whether to leave or whether to stay. We mentioned security. Is this something that has ever, is, is this something that you guys have run into in your daily practice? Have you personally felt uh, in danger? This is unfortunately part of the practice and part of the work that we do, that we do get threatened and, and do fear for our safety. But of course, we rely on, you know, in that particular instance where I received a letter and a phone call, we rely on the DA, the district attorney, to, to prosecute those crimes. Um, and they do investigations in order to, to um, protect us as well as the client. But it does happen. It's unfortunately part of the type of work that we do. So when a client does choose to step away, when a client is looking for uh, uh, actual physical separation, what tools do you have in your arsenal to, to protect her? There are a number of things that, um, that a client can use through the court system. The first option that we might talk to her about is petitioning for an order of protection. And um, orders of protection is what they're called in New York and other states. It's called a restraining order. Um, and basically, there's two ways to get a, an order of protection or a restraining order. And one is through the criminal court system when you're a witness of a crime. Often, the district attorney will recommend to the judge that an order of protection be issued on your behalf. The other way to do it, if there's no criminal court case, there's no charges being brought, is for the victim herself to petition in a civil action for an order of protection. And in New York State, where she would um, do that is in the family court. The order of protection is often brought about by the victim herself. It, it can happen that way if there's no criminal case pending. And sometimes clients choose to both have a criminal court order of protection, which the DA is in, in charge of, the district attorney is really in charge of, and also go ahead and file for her own um, order of protection in, in a civil action in family court. How complex 
is this process? It's more complex than clients know um, or think about. In the family court in New York, the process is that um, she goes and she petitions herself. In the family court, you don't need to have a lawyer. Um, it's a pro se friendly court. So she can go and she can petition herself and she'll see a judge that day and walk out with an ex parte temporary order of protection without having had the other side served yet. So you can walk in as a victim and in the same day receive a, at least a temporary order of protection. That's right. And then the process is that um, the petitioner is responsible for having the other side served. Most often that's with the help of the police. Um, and then the respondent or the abuser is served with a copy of the petition and he has the opportunity to come back to court on the next return date and answer the allegations. And he'll have the option of either consenting to the order of protection without admitting anything, or he can say, I did absolutely nothing wrong, and, and that would force the petitioner to prove by preponderance of the evidence um, that the allegations against him are true. So if it's contested, then there may actually be a court hearing or procedure. A full evidentiary trial. With both parties present. With both parties present. And in New York, those both, both of those parties have the right to have a counsel. If they can't afford counsel, one will be appointed for them. And is this also in family court? Yes. What clients don't often know is that is what the process is. So they don't know that the respondent is going to read the petition, the allegations in their petition. They don't know that they're going to have to confront their abuser in court not just on one date, but potentially on several dates, and that eventually they'll, be, um, they'll have to provide testimony and other evidence in front of a judge um, so that the judge can um, determine whether they're, they're telling the truth and whether their burden has been met. It seems that you're suggesting that uh, when clients come to you, they think the process might be anonymous. That is one thing that they sometimes think, yes. So let's say that the order of protection or the restraining order goes into effect. What happens then if it's ignored? Well, the order of protection is not in full effect until the respondent is served. So he has to be placed on notice that an order of protection exists. If then he is aware that the, there is a current temporary order of protection, he chooses to violate that by um, violating the terms of that order, which could be to her if he chooses to harass her, stalk her, or if he physically assaults her, then he is arrested. And it's the, the criminal court then prosecutes him for violating that order of protection. So the violation of this restraining order or order of protection in and of itself is a felony? Yes, and, and the, because you're violating a court order, it could rise to the level of a felony. It also depends on what type of act is committed against the client, uh, against the petitioner, I should say, and also whether or not the client has called the police and the police arrests him. So it could rise to the level of a felony, yes, in New York State. So what happens if there are children involved? So often if the target of the abuse has children with her abuser, um, she'll want to try to get an order of custody so that she's able to have um, full decision-making authority over the children. Although that is something that we have to discuss with the survivor of violence before she petitions, hopefully, because sometimes it's not always in her best interest. For example, I met with a client the other day who was um, very badly abused by her um, child's father. They weren't married. And she came to my office. She had a visible black eye 
um, and um, her daughter was three years old, and she said, I do not want my child's father to ask for a visitation in the court. I only want supervised visitation. If supervised visitation. Supervised visitation. So what she's what, does that mean? what she's referring to is um, that in some court cases, when a child may be placed at risk by having regular visits with their father, because judges often, if the father wants to have contact with the child, the judge will often um, order some type of visitation between the father and the child. And um, many of our clients, many of the people that we see, are very afraid to have their child be left alone with a person that has brutally assaulted them, understandably. However, the family court system is severely under-resourced. And if there's nobody in the family, in the network of the family or friends of our client who can provide that supervision and that the father would agree to have that person provide supervision, the court very often is the one that's left to provide the supervisor for the visitation. But, of course, because... Is this a, a social worker? Or? It could, it's usually a social worker or a counselor or a case manager from a nonprofit organization, such as the New York State for the Prevention of Cruelty to Children. That's one supervised visitation provider in New York State. There's not enough of them. And so often judges will not order supervised visitation. Um, they'll, they have to use their discretion and be very selective about the cases in which that happens. And often they'll do it in cases where there is a history of violence directed at the child. And in this case, there hadn't been. So what I advise that client to do is um, basically not file a custody petition in the court. Why would the, the victim not want to seek custody? The victim might not want to seek custody because she might not want to open the door to a court proceeding where the father of the child would have the opportunity to ask for visits with the child. She might be a, a scared and in, in, in fear for her child that her, the father having visits with the child would pose some risk of harm to the child. And so she might not want to ask for custody at this time. So it may just be a, a matter of of planning when would be the appropriate time to pursue. Exactly. Or waiting for him to petition for visitation because oftentimes if he's not seeking to see the children, um, then why even raise that issue by petitioning for custody? It adds many advantages to the client or the abused, the, the victim of domestic violence um, not to petition for custody and allow that gap in time between the abusive father and the child to develop because then it will lend itself or support itself to her claim for supervised visits. So it's almost like uh, by opening up this legal procedure, you're reminding the abuser that he may have certain rights and whether or not he actually wants them, he may assert, he may assert them at that time. Absolutely. And that's another conversation that we have when it comes to child support. Um, you asked about other protections that the, that the courts um, offer to victims of violence. And, and child support is frequently something that people like to talk to us about and ask us about. In New York, as in all states, um, non-custodial parents have the obligation of supporting their children. 
And so when there's a, a family that has been separated as a result of violence, um, frequently um, the, the abused party is at a loss. She doesn't have income. She might not have a place to live. Um, her, she might be working or she might not, but it might not be enough to support the child. And so she, um, she often wants to petition in the family court for child support or for spousal support. Um, there's another obligation between spouses that um, is in the law that makes it an obligation for spouses to support each other also, although it's not a, the same obligation as it is to children. So these go back to uh, part of that message that you were trying to get out uh, earlier that you mentioned, that by leaving their abuser, they may not actually be destitute. They may be entitled to certain financial uh, support. That's right. That That's right. But we also have to have the conversation before um, the person files for child support about what that might be opening the door to. So, for example, what often happens is that people file for child support and then the respondent, the non-custodial parent, retaliates by filing for custody of the child. And um, because in some cases he may have threatened, well, if you file for child support, I'm taking the child away, um, then, then um, she has to deal with a custody proceeding that may be very intimidating for her. So sometimes we talk to um, people about also the, the consequences of maybe filing a child support petition. So if I was a victim and I came in and I was looking for support, mm -hmm. uh, that would be a conversation we'd have. Yes, right? that's a conversation that we would have. And maybe it would be worth it to her. Maybe she would say, well, we have to, we have to duke out custody anyway, and I'm ready now to have that proceeding move forward. And, and it's, it's really uh, worth it to me to file my petition for child support because I really need that money. And then we would absolutely counsel her about what the proceeding would be like and what would be required of her. For those who are listening for MCLE credit, the code for this interview is 15. 3105. That's 153105. Now back to the interview. So is this a, a flaw in the system? I mean, it doesn't seem like child custody should be seen as a bargaining chip to avoid payment of obligations. The court keeps custody and visitation and child support separate. It's not as if you could make that argument in court and say, well, I don't want to pay child support, so I want custody of the children. But the court does see through those intentions, especially if an abuser is coming in and saying, well, um, you know, I, I deserve custody because I'm the better fit parent. And then later on, through either forensic evaluations, the appointment of an attorney for the child, it comes out that he's actually, you know, addicted to substance abuse or has... Um, not properly cared for the children in the past has been neglectful, then the, you know, the court through investigation will come to the conclusion that he's not the better fit parent. But in the meantime, the client is dragged through this process, this court process, and having so many strangers in her life as well as the lives of the children, and it makes it very difficult. And that's something that we, it, it's an in-depth conversation that we have with the client, whether or not she's ready for it. But many abusers do threaten that. It's not a, uh, a substantiated threat. I mean, especially if the client is the primary caretaker of the children, has been the residential parent of the children, takes the children to all of their doctor's appointments, knows all of their teachers. I mean, um, if the 
father who's asking for custody doesn't know anything about who the child's pediatrician is, then that's an indication to the court that um, he's, he's just seeking this out so he doesn't have to pay support. The threat's still very real because even a, a low probability chance of a bad outcome can be seen by some victims as a non-starter. Yes, and that's, and that's one of the reasons why it's crucial for um, victims or survivors of domestic violence to have competent counsel who know how to represent them because often, um, you know, abusers sometimes will present, um, maybe there, there is no substance abuse and they will present as the more competent parent, especially if there's been an extensive history of domestic violence, which has resulted in mental health issues potentially for, um, for the abused party. Wow. So just an example of that, I have one client who um, was seeking, she, she left an abusive relationship by fleeing with her child into a domestic violence shelter. And as a result of that, the father, husband in that case, petitioned for custody, um, was able to find her to be served and she had to appear in court. And he had post-traumatic stress disorder from being in the military, being um, in the Marines and being in active duty. Um, and that the client knew of and suffered a lot of psychological abuse and so did the child as a result of his mental illness. And the court did not see it. He presented phenomenally in court. He was able to represent himself for a period of time until it got to the stage of trial where he didn't understand evidentiary rules, the civil practice laws and rules in New York State. So eventually he, he was appointed counsel. Um, but he convinced the court through his manipulation, through his um, psychological tactics, the same kind of tools that he used against our client, was able to convince the court that he may have been the better fit parent. Um, as a result of the custody trial, it turns out that he it finally came out through um, evidence that was produced that he had these mad emails. I mean, just crazy emails, if you and I were reading them, you would say, okay, there's something really, there's an underlying history of mental illness, clearly, um, with this person. And once that came out, the court realized, you know, and the um, client was given sole custody of the child. And he did have some visitation. It was unsupervised. And the, the court believed that his intentions were to psychologically abuse the client and not necessarily the child. Um, so that's why he was granted some visitation. But um, many of these issues, mental illness, substance abuse, don't really come out until later stages in the um, court process. You mentioned as well that there's, even if the outcome looks positive, there's the threat of the process. Some of the victims are unwilling or rightfully so afraid to be in the, in the presence of their abuser and maybe the process alone can be a threat. Yes, absolutely. And we've had clients who um, withdrew their petitions because of the repeated court appearances in which they had to confront their abuser. There was one egregious example I can think of that where um, one of our clients, um, she was abused by a previous intimate partner and she petitioned for an order of protection in the family court and um, because an interpreter was needed um, for the respondent in this case, our client spoke English, but the respondent, her abuser, did not, and he spoke a pretty rare language. Um, there was only one interpreter 
in all of New York City who spoke that language. And so there was repeated adjournments where the interpreter didn't show up or the judge didn't show up. And a year later, she still didn't have her order of protection, although she had had temporary order of protect, orders of protection the entire time. And um, we had kept preparing her for trial, and there was a lot of buildup and a lot of emotion around that. And finally, um, the last day where there was going to be another adjournment, she finally said, I don't want to do this anymore. And she withdrew her petition for order of protection because she just couldn't tolerate the constant anxiety and emotions involved in confronting her abuser in court. The process itself was too much. The process itself had taken too long. For more legal explainers and interviews with the titans of law, visit TalksOnLaw.com. If you're earning MCLE for this interview, you can enter your confirmation code at TalksOnLaw.com slash MCLE podcast to get your certificate. Join us again soon for more cutting-edge interviews on the California MCLE podcast.